Pray with me, please. Thank you, Father, for this time of worship. Thank you for the privilege of being here this morning. Thank you, Father, for all the good things that you do for us. I pray that uh, you'll be with us in this part of the service as you've been with us thus far. Ask you, Father, to speak to our hearts today. And I pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I'm honored Dr. Snowden uh, felt like he could ask me to fill in the pulpit for him while he was gone. Uh, and to be honest, I'm just a little bit intimidated preaching in this church. And uh, what about all the people out there that uh, know theology and all those things a whole lot better than I do? But uh, it is a privilege for me to be here. I also uh, have a, a very heavy West Texas accent. I've taken some grief in my seminary classes over the years because of that. And uh, I was pastor of three churches in California, so you can imagine the grief I took there. <laughs> and even when we were missionaries in Mexico years ago, they said I spoke Spanish with a Texas accent. So <laughs> if, you can, if you can put up with that, that'll, that'll make me feel better, make me a little bit more at ease. Texas morning is found in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. And it's a very familiar text. You could tell this story yourselves. Uh, if you want to look at it with me, I would encourage you to do so. Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days uh, later, not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began, they began to celebrate. Now, that's not the end of the story, and many scholars will tell you that the second part of the story is more important, really, than the first part of the story. But through the years, those of us who have been involved in, in church and in the Christian life have come to love and appreciate this first part of the story in a very, very special and unique way. Helmut Tielke was a great uh, German preacher years ago. Uh, mainly during and after World War II, probably one of the best old preachers in the world at his day. 
And he wrote a book called The Waiting Father. It was a book of sermons on the parables. And he got the title, The Waiting Father, from this story that we've read uh, just now together. And uh, he uses three different metaphors in that story to say basically that when we look at this story, we see ourselves there. The first metaphor he uses is the metaphor of a little boy. He says his own son standing in front of a mirror for the first time, and for the first time recognizing himself in the mirror, recognizing that when he moved, that figure in the mirror moved, and realizing that that was truly his reflection he was looking at. He said, when we read this story, we see our story in that. Again, a little later in his message there, on, uh, entitled The Waiting Father, he, he uses a different metaphor. He says, it's as if we're standing in front of a portrait, and we realize that as we look at that portrait, we're seeing a portrait of our, ourselves. And it's really our portrait that we are looking at. And then he uses a third uh, metaphor as he goes on through the sermon. And the third metaphor is as if we are hearing someone read a biography, and we realize that that person is reading our biography. I personally believe that one of the best ways we know that the Scripture is inspired is by the way we see ourselves in the stories and the events of the Bible. Many of those events are told as stories, and we could see the reflection of ourselves in that and realize that this was something that, that happened to us. This really is, is our story. And certainly that can be true in this, this particular story of the prodigal son. When I was in the ninth grade, I ran away from home. I was raised in a little West Texas town, and uh, my, my parents were the most wonderful parents in the world, great Christian parents, but they were very strict, as Christian parents often were in those days. And I wanted to get away from that, and so I got out on the highway and started hitchhiking. And as evening drew near, I found myself in Lubbock, and I looked for a place to stay warm. I don't know if you realize it or not, but even in the desert, it gets cool at night. And look for a place to stay warm. There was a, a, a place where they had trucks, and one of those trucks was open. I climbed in the back end of one of those trucks trying to get enough place so I could stay a little warm. It still was not very warm. Got out on the highway again and started hitchhiking, and the guy picked me up and took me to Plainview. Uh, got to Plainview just at the break of day and went and got a room, spent what little money I had, got a room in a cheap hotel, went to bed and slept till that afternoon. Then I got up that afternoon and began looking for a job. The only job that I could find there in Plainview, uh, a fellow said he would hire me if I would go into the fields and pick cotton. Have any of you ever picked cotton? I want to tell you, it only took me one day to realize I didn't want to spend the rest of my life. I didn't even want to spend another day picking cotton. And so I got out on the highway again and started hitchhiking once again. And a couple of Marines picked me up and took me all the way to Oceanside where, where, they, were, uh, had, uh, uh, where they were stationed. And I went to Oceanside, California with them. And then I got a ride with a truck driver into L.A. First time I'd been to a city like L.A., you can imagine a kid from a small West Texas town in a city like L.A. had no money. Truck driver told me if I'd go to the Y, YMCA, they would give me a, a, a room, a bed to sleep in, not a room, but a bed to sleep in. So I went to the Y. They questioned me, I mean, for a long time. I was obviously just a little kid. They questioned me for a long time and uh, finally gave me a bed. I went up in this great big squad bay, and there was a, there was a, 
uh, one of the beds was assigned to me. Left my gear, what little gear I had on the bed, went downstairs to the coffee shop and spent the last money I had on a cup of coffee and a donut. That's what I had to buy. I spent the last money I had on a cup of coffee and a donut. Went back up, and the cops were there waiting for me. They booked me for being a transit. Now, I was just a little bit, you know, five years later, a lot of young people were traveling that way uh, back in the 60s. But at that particular time, uh, there weren't many of us. Uh, they picked me up, and they took me to the juvenile hall in L.A. County and booked me in the juvenile hall there in L.A. County. They said, we're going to send a letter to your folks, and if they will send us an airplane ticket, we will put you on an airplane and send you back home. I didn't know how my folks would respond. And I said, what if they don't send the ticket? And they said, you'll stay here in juvenile hall until you're 21. I was 14 years old at the time. <laughs> I didn't want to spend another day in juvenile hall in L.A. County, much less seven years. And so I hoped that they would want me back and send that back. So, I, you know, the days went by, four, five, six days. And uh, I went, I, I got really nervous. And I went to see the authorities and I said, have you heard anything? Nope, haven't heard anything. The next night, deep in the night, a couple of cops, a male and a female cop, came and picked me up and took me to the airport, in, uh, L.A. airport, put me on a plane to El Paso. I was in that plane in El Paso all the way home thinking, I wonder how I'm going to feel when I get home, how I'm going to respond, how I'm going to act, how, how my parents will act toward me. All these questions in my mind. We landed there at El Paso. Everybody got off the plane, and I sat there and didn't get off the plane. I sat there and get off the plane. I want you to understand something important here is that when you've been a long way off and when you've run away from home and you come back, you've got all these questions in your mind. How will I be received? How will they treat me? Do they really want me back? How will I know? How will I act? And so I sat there. Finally, the stewardess came and got me. Said, you got to get off the plane. So I went with her and went to the door of the plane. It was the old days, you know, when you walked across the tarmac and then climbed a ladder to get in the plane. Some of you folks are so young, you never even saw those except in movies, but that's where it was. And we started down the ladder there. And my father came running across the pavement there, jumped up three or four steps on that plane, grabbed me in his arms, held me close to him, and said, I'm so glad that you've come home. I'm so glad that you've come home. My folks took me that, uh, went home, uh, went to a motel that night, Next day, they took me out and bought me some clothes. I just had the one set of clothes I'd been wearing. And we drove the 250 miles back to my hometown. My folks telling me all the way home how much they loved me and how glad they were that, that I'd come home. It's important that you understand, as I tell you this story, it's important that you understand how I felt about coming home. Because if you've never been there, you don't really understand this. 
how I felt about coming home. Would I be received? Would they want me back? Would they discipline me? How would they treat me when I came back home? It's important for you to understand that because those things had to be in this young man's mind in those days. Look at the, look at the passage with me, if you will, just for a moment. It's called sometimes the gospel in miniature, very special passage called by some people the gospel in a story. In verse 24, there's a word lost. This my son was lost and is found. And that lost is a very interesting word. That lost is translated, depending on your translation, is translated in the New Testament some 28 times as lost or lose, but it's also translated some 23 times as destroy or destroyed. And sometimes we ask ourselves, what does the Bible mean when it talks about being lost? Well, one of the things it means is to live a self-destructive life. Now, this young man certainly was living a life that was very self-destructive in what, what he had done in every way. In uh, verse 13, you see that he lost his relationship with his father. did this purposefully. He went off into a far country. In verse 13, again, he lost his character. He spent everything he had in reckless living. Verse 14, he lost everything. Everything was gone now. Verse 15, he lost his, lost his self-respect. No self-respecting Jewish boy would want to feed pigs. And he lost his self-respect. And then also in that verse, you see that he lost all hope. He was hungry, no food, ready to eat what the pigs ate, and no one helped him at all. He had lost all hope. And then if you look at verse 17, it says he came to his senses. He came to himself. He realized his own situation. He finally got honest with himself about himself. How big a thing it is for all of us, all of us, when we come to a point in our lives where we're able to get honest with ourselves about ourselves and who we are to see ourselves as we really are, because we're really good about lying to ourselves about ourselves. He was able to see himself as he really was. And then he repented. Now, the word repent is not, is not really in this passage, but it is acted out in the passage. He left his father. He went off into the far country. Out there in the far country, everything went wrong. He turned around and decided to come back. And that's what repentance is all about. And we find, we find out that an interesting thing about repentance, and that is that repentance is a positive word. Repent in biblical terms is not a negative word. It's a positive word. You know what that boy gave up to go home to his dad? The pig pen. That's what he gave up. And I think sometimes we talk about repentance, and we talk about it in such a sense, oh, the stuff that we had to give up to follow Christ, the stuff that we had to turn. I, I think that's a misunderstanding altogether. A couple of stories Jesus told in, in Matthew, one of them was about a man plowing in the field who found this great treasure. For joy, it says, he went and sold everything he had so he could buy that field to get that treasure. And told about a guy who was a, a pearl merchant searching for the pearl of great price, 
went and get, sold everything he had in order to get that pearl because he wanted that pearl more than he wanted everything else. See, repentance is not a negative word. Repentance is a positive word. It's the day we decide not to stay in a far country, but to come home. That's a very interesting thing there. And then he didn't just decide to come home. He actually went home. He didn't just talk about it. He didn't say, this is what I will say when I get to my father. But he actually went home. And when he got home, he confessed. He confessed to his father. Father, I've said against heaven. There's a construction there, by the way, in that terminology. Some people say that I've sinned against heaven meant my sins have piled up to heaven. He was very honest with his dad as he'd been honest with himself. Dad, I got a big pile of sins, and I am not worthy. I'm not worthy to be your son. And this is really the kind of attitude we must have when we come to Christ. Honesty about our sins and honesty about the fact that we are unworthy. I, uh, through the years, had a lot of experience with people uh, that I was trying to minister to. And uh, one day a guy wanted to talk to me about giving his life to Christ. And I went and visited with him. And I was sitting in the chair and he was sitting on the floor. And I was talking to him about praying and giving his life to Christ. And uh, he sat there on the floor. I, I explained to him how he should pray. And I said, okay, you want to pray? He said, yeah, I want to pray. <laughs> and he started out, God, he said, I've been a dirty SOB, except he didn't say SOB, folks. Now, I'm, I'm sitting there trying my best to keep from giggling, you know. I'm chewing my, my, my cheek trying to keep from giggling of what he said. But the truth is, this guy had it right, and God knew what he was talking about. And he had the attitude right. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to come to you. Had a young man come to me one time and sat in the office with me and talked to me. And again, we came to that point of praying. He said, uh, dear Lord, he said, if I have sinned, and I said, wait a minute, you, we better just stop right there. There's no if I had sinned. If you can't get more serious with God than that, then let's just forget it. You see, our attitude when we come to him is extremely, extremely important. And so he came to him in that special way. I'm reminded a little bit of the, the great hymn by Kirkpatrick, you know, I've wandered far away from home. Now I'm coming home, coming home, coming home, never more to Rome. You see, the ball was in his court, just like the ball is always in our court. God has done what he can to reach out to us. As Mother Teresa said, he sent out his lasso of love to our hearts, and it's up to us to respond, always. It's always up to us to respond. And then in verse 20, we have the waiting father. Reminded a little bit of the great hymn by Thompson, you know, see on the portals, he's waiting and watching, waiting for you and for me. But when the boy came home, he saw him, saw him because he'd been looking for him, saw him. And he received him with compassion. He went out, put his arms around him, kissed him, let him know how glad he was that his boy had come home how happy he was. He received him. He ran to meet him. Ran to meet him. I remember, again, the more modern hymn that we sing sometimes by Carmichael, you know, 
if you'll take one step toward the Savior, my friend, you'll find his arms open wide. That's sort of the picture we have here. You read out, by the way, some people say it's the only time in the Bible that, 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 that God is pictured as hurrying to get anywhere is when he ran to meet this boy, when the father ran to meet this boy and restored him. The robe, the ring, the shoes, the fatted calf, and the celebration. I hope you can stand one more personal story, if you'll let me tell one more personal story. Years later, when we were in Mexico, uh, missionaries in Mexico, uh, we were going to a mission meeting. Mission meetings back in those days, mission field were wonderful times. They were like a reunion, people all over the country coming together, friends and fellow workers that you did only saw once a year. It's like a big family reunion. You come together. It was a time of spiritual renewal. There was always some kind of revival, renewal effort going on. And then you did business, did business. Now, if you've ever been in a tough business meeting in a church, in a tough business meeting, just imagine what it would be like with 95 missionaries at a business meeting. And so, you know, this is what we would do. But it was a great time of reunion. We'd been on furlough in the United States, so we flew into Mexico City, got to the airport there in Mexico City, went down to the end of the airport, and got a ride in a Combi. Combi was a bus, uh, Volkswagen bus, and they were cheaper than taxis because they would, you know, fill up the bus and take people where they wanted to go. And uh, we got a ride to Combi. My son was in the third grade at that time, and he took his suitcase, climbed all the way to the back of that Combi, threw his suitcase over, climbed back in the back, and went to sleep. Well, an hour later, we got to Satility, which is the little suburb town of where the Mexican Baptist Seminary is, and went to this missionary's home where a bunch of missionaries were, got out of the combi. We were hugging everyone and smiling and laughing. It was just a, a real time of reunion. Combi drove off. About 15 minutes later, we realized that our son wasn't with us. He climbed back over the back of that combi and gone to sleep, and now he was gone. Uh, I cannot, I cannot... I cannot express fully to you the panic that we felt at that particular time. Mexico City was not the nicest city in the world, uh, not a place where you wanted to lose a child, certainly. And uh, it, at that time, was either the first or second largest city in the world. So immediately we got on the phone, called back down to the office there at the airport, and uh, the fellow had not gotten back yet. So my wife and the lady whose home we were in, they stayed on the phone, and the men where we were, he, we got into his car, he and I did, and we went as fast as we could back down to the airport there, Mexico City, praying, crying, hoping. Finally, we got a word. The guy had not returned, and what he responded was, well, Maybe he's taking his food break. It was time for his food break. Maybe he's taking his food break. All I could think of was, you know, our son waking up, being in a strange place, getting out of that combi, and he would have been lost, lost forever for us. So we, you know, we just 
panic, fear, everything in the world. The Combies came in. We stood there at the office. Jim Philpott and I stood there at the office where the Combies went out and watched every one of them come in as they checked in to see if it was our driver. And it didn't come, it didn't come, it didn't come. The longer it was, uh, the more afraid, the more afraid we got. And finally, finally he came in. And thank God, you know, our son Tim was there. He got off the Volkswagen bus, stood there with his suitcase in his hand. He's in the third grade now. Stood there with the suitcase in his hand. He said, Dad, I was scared to death, but I didn't cry. I said, boy, I cried. <laughs> and I mean, I had cried. And I cannot tell you how I felt when, when he got I mean, I grabbed him in my arms. I just held him just as close and tightly as I could. And uh, it was just, I was just so thankful. Now, we're, we're there. I don't know how it is now. I haven't been there in years, but coming out of the airport there in Mexico City, there's about eight or ten lanes, and they narrowed down to three lanes. And so this is right, right where we were was where they narrowed down to three lanes. And we were standing out there in the middle of this traffic, and I was down on my knees holding my son like this, just so glad to have my son back. And uh, Jim Philpott, the fellow that was with me, was standing up there in front of us waving the cars off so they didn't run over us. If you've ever been in Mexico, you know how they drive in Mexico. Uh, you know, he's waving the cars off. I didn't care about the cars. I didn't care about anything. All I cared about was my son was back, and he wasn't lost forever. I hope you can understand what I'm trying to say. Now, folks, that's the way God feels when we come home to Him. The Bible's very clear. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one soul that repents than over 99 that don't need to repent. That's the way God is. And it's really important because, you see, if, you're, if you, if you uh, go back with me to when I came home there when I was a kid, and I didn't know how I'd be received. But God receives us with open arms. And I want you to know today, nothing in the world can make God happier than for one of His to come home. Nothing in the world can make God happier than for the one that's in the far country to come home. So I want to say two things and ask you to grab these two things. If you're one of those out there who's wanting to come home, in your heart you want to come home or anything in the world, but you're just not sure whether God wants you back or not, and you say in your heart, God, I would, I would blame you if you didn't want me back or not. I want you to know He wants you back. He wants you back. And that I want you to know the rest of you, the good folks, I want you to know that when that prodigal son or daughter comes home, it is so important that you and I today, because we are the embodiment of Christ, we are the embodiment of the church today, it's so important that we welcome them with open arms today. That's my message. And God bless you. Thanks for the opportunity to share it with you.